Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join me in a capital on lockdown for the second week. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Brian Gilda, Director of People's Limited, the United Kingdom's largest independent Ford dealer. Brian, hello. Yeah, hi, Matthew. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming on the program today. Um, before we uh, get stuck into the conversation on leadership, uh, it'd be remiss of me not to address the COVID-19 situation. How has that affected uh, People's Limited? Well, we're in the we're in the sharp end of the retail business and as much as uh, we sell cars <coughs> and vans, terrace and parts. So we are, apart from having our skeleton staff and two out of six dealerships to help support uh, needy customers in the blue light services then were shut down so uh we we couldn't be worse affected um i think unless we were in the airport of the airline business because plainly they're having some serious boiler just now so we're, we're pretty well shut down well there isn't really a facility for home working for most of your staff is there um unfortunately there is a we, we have to keep our it part of things going we have to keep our call center people going um, but we can't sell anything because we can't deliver. Mm-hmm. Um, so therefore, we have the vast majority of our 400 staff and I have. So the vast majority of the staff are, are on furlough. What about servicing uh, requirements for vehicles at this point in time? Yes, we've kept, uh, we've kept a, a skeleton staff on because uh, people can be in need. And we've reached out to the, uh, the NHS uh, people, which are adjacent. We have very large hospitals adjacent to the areas that we operate in and we've reached out to them to say look if there's any of the staff or workers require any help then uh, we'll put them at the head of the queue or we'll do whatever it takes to keep them keep them mobile fortunately the government decided to uh, extend the MOT scheme which was good mm-hmm. so that means that people aren't breaking the law so we're trying to do as much as we can within the confines of ensuring our staff are safe when they're at work of course Well, let's move on to the subject of leadership. Um, I always like to begin this conversation with a very simple question, and that is, what does the word leader mean to you? Uh, In my case, it's probably dead straightforward, because when I started the the business a long time ago, it was on a basis I was fed up working for other people, um, because I I ended up um, on two occasions uh, out of work through no decisions that were made by me or made by others. So... I came to the conclusion that if I was going to end up being displaced once more, it would be because of my idiocy rather than somebody else's. So it was in simple terms to try and lead from the front and have my own business motivated by, um, it wasn't never motivated by money. The, the, the key for me was being motivated by success. And in so doing then, I felt that the business itself being successful and myself, my family, my employees, We'd all benefit from that. So uh, the leadership part for me was pretty straightforward. I have a very strong rearview mirror, and whenever I'm um, I'm ever tempted to forget, I look in the rearview mirror, and it brings me back to reality. That remember where you came from, and um, although I never thought, I thought I'd seen everything except excepting famine and pestilence. But this uh, coronavirus has obviously taken my breath away. Of course. And of course, you've made uh, quite the career jump. Uh, you were a former director of Amnesty International, uh, now coming into the uh, the auto uh, industry. What prompted you to make that jump? 
Well, it's the other way around. I've pretty well been in the auto industry for a long time, both here and in North America. I wanted to go over there and uh, get an opportunity to learn how they do it over there, which I, I did do, and it was a, it was a great um, experience. Mm-hmm. I've always probably had um, a human rights touch, and as much as many years ago, I lived in South Africa uh, for a couple of years, and that was during the worst of the apartheid days. And... Um, and you could see clearly just how definitive and how awful the apartheid system was. So I suspect my human rights credentials kind of grew from there. And then over, to, I've been a member of Amnesty for a long, long time. Mm. And um, and then when the opportunity came up um, for a change of board, which comes up pretty well every year, uh, I spoke to Kate Allen, who's the director there, and I said um, I'd, be, uh, I'd be interested in joining the board. Um, unfortunately, I'm a capitalist swine. Does that affect your thinking with regard to that? And she said not. She thought it would be a, a benefit. And I sat on the board of Amnesty for uh, four years. I did my first stint and then took on a second stint. But then believe, like most things with these things, you're probably better to rotate the, 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 the directors in that and bring in different thinking. So I, I did my stint. I enjoyed it. and um, But it was part of my history. I didn't. I didn't get to it through the motor industry. I got it through my through my endeavours in South Africa and thinking about what um, uh, the best way to look at human rights is, is about. Mm, of course. Now, do you feel that you've been able to take that experience and uh, use it in your uh, other professional life? Yeah, I mean, I think you've got to have. Um, I mean, I come from reasonably humble beginnings, perfectly happy beginnings. Don't get me wrong. Um, but uh, whatever I've um, set out to do, it's really been on my most in my own endeavours, along with the team that work with me. So therefore, it, you, you kind of get a mix of priorities with regard to that. You have your own um, significance in terms of what you want to do. You have your families, what you want them to do. You have your children, how they grow up, what you want them to do. But within that, you have to take account of um, a, a lot of good people who work with you for you. And you have to be able to be in a position to to respond to what they're looking for, what they need, and how you can make them, um, their families better off and everything like that. So it's all part of a, a mix. The human, the, the, the amnesty part certainly got me got me connected up to some of the more brutal parts of our world. But um, there's enough brutal parts in the industry I, <laughs> I operate in, I can tell you. Now, let's go back to the very beginning of your career when you first started out your working life. Were there any particular role models uh, that really shaped the way that you lead today? Well, funny enough, there is, because I was saying I worked over in Canada for a while, and um, the, the sales manager I was there, <coughs> so I understand, I, um, I went over there, and I didn't have a job to go to, although I went to um, a very large dealership there, and... Um, and they, they didn't employ me because they thought I would just take up showroom time and I would take uh, money out of other people's uh, mouth, and et cetera, et cetera. And I said, well, I'll only take somebody who comes in to see about a car if everybody else is busy. I won't take any showroom time. Just give me a desk and a phone. And ultimately, I, I managed to survive and do pretty well. And, and the man who was running the business, a guy called Ian Goodman, uh, uh, he was in um, uh, Dyke and Wool, industry guy. He was so focused into making sure that you were doing the right thing on a daily basis. You were in on time, you dressed accordingly, 
your attitude was correct, you helped others because you knew if you did that, people would come back. You looked after your customers 100%, 100% of the time. And he was completely unforgiving with regard to all of that. And, um, and he took it as his daily routine. So I look back and I think to myself, in all the sales roles I've been in, which has been a few, who's the one that taught me the most? And it was his diligence and his attention to detail that made the real difference for me. He was excellent and a great tutor. Do you feel that you wish to pass those lessons on to those that you lead today? Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty confident. I've done that with, uh, with a lot of people. Both I have six dealerships, three in Scotland and three in the northwest of England. And, um, and I do realize that um, people work for me for a while. And as one um, sage manager I used to work for said, if you've left your mummy, you'll leave me. So I have to get uh, used to the fact that I get people and they move on. And I think that a lot of them have benefited both working with me and the leadership I've showed and bestowed with them. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the case. Now, unfortunately, our time together is drawing to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for Peoples? Well, again, a wise old sage said to me a long time ago, if you want to prosper in a difficult marketplace, firstly, you've got to survive. And um, the government have come out with a, a job retention scheme, which frankly, one would always want more, but it's an opportunity to preserve the staff. And within that, what we have to do is to make sure that we understand that in surviving, the business will come back. Mm. Whether it comes back at the same level as before, mm. I'm unsure. So the, the intent within the next period in time is firstly to survive, protect as many of my staff and their families as I can, and then look to be able to grow the business again, start again, really, is what I meant. Well, Brian, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you today, and I very much hope you come back on the program when it's not so stormy outside. Uh, Brian, thank you. You're most welcome. That was Brian Gilda, Director of Peoples Limited. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Uh, we're joined uh, today by uh, David Blunkett, Lord Blunkett, former Home Secretary, former Education Secretary, David, thank you very much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Uh, it's always a pleasure, but uh, since we are talking around the theme of leadership, it would be a remiss of me if we didn't start with the leadership election going on in the Labour Party. Apart from, I'm sure your delight that a certain someone is leaving a post, what are your thoughts on it so far? Well, I think the party membership have got to make a very clear decision. Uh, are they in, in the stands watching or are they on the pitch playing? And if they want to play, then the two candidates that are in for the future are Lisa Nandy and Keir Starmer. I'm personally backing Lisa because I think she's a brave woman with a tremendous amount to give. She's got really good, positive ideas. I like them because they're about building from the community rather than command and control from the centre. They're about a new form of social democracy and socialism rather than trying to replicate a failed past. And she can reach out to people that others can't. So I'm, I'm giving her my backing. I think Keir Starmer is very professional, mm. very able, and presents extremely well. And I, I hope that one of those two uh, actually come through in the election on the 4th of April. Uh, there has been a lot of criticism, especially from... Uh, for uh, candidates a little further left um, than them who've criticised even the last Labour uh, 
uh, government as being part of 40 years of Thatcherism. Yes, I think it's really unfortunate, uh, particularly when new MPs come in having seen large swathes of their colleagues lose their seat, uh, to roll up the 13 years of Labour government with everything that I'm so proud of. I mean, I, we, we were not neoliberals or anything like it. We were able, in the first 10 years certainly, uh, which I played a part in, to be able to turn the economy around, to invest in health and education, to be able to transform people's aspirations and their hopes for the, the future. And that included ensuring people got the minimum wage, which we never had before, Sure start to nurture youngsters from the most moment they were born, transformation in the quality of education. And all these things actually add up to helping people to improve and change their lives for the better. And anyone who thinks that's not good and that isn't a government to be proud of needs to answer the question, what chivalet is it that you would want that would actually have done more to change those lives? I can think of two or three myself in terms mm. of uh, dramatically taking on uh, inequality, although half a million children were taken out of poverty in those years. I can think of being even tougher on crime, even though I was dubbed as one of the tougher Home Secretaries because the people that I cared about most were, on the whole, not exclusively, but mainly the victims of crime. I can think about taking on the very, very rapidly growing transnational power of the big tech companies, which we still need to work through in terms of how we do that from a, a single nation just off the coast of Europe, and how we work internationally without getting caught up in wars we don't want to be involved in, but how, how are we international in a way that ensures that we play our part in making a better life for humanity as a whole, rather than disengaging and becoming alien from the rest of the world. Those are big questions for the social democratic left, particularly with artificial intelligence and robotics changing the world of work forever, I think, in the next 20 years. Uh, an ageing population. Labour got 18% of the over 65 vote in the general election. Just 18%. It's staggeringly... It's extraordinary. Staggeringly bad. Um, and and climate change, which we all know is going to be either a big gain or a terrific political trauma. We've got to take people with us. No matter uh, which political party it is, the changes that will occur in this decade especially will determine their future ideologies, certainly. And sp speaking of your time uh, as Home Section in government, um, you worked with so many different individuals of all political stripes and none at all. Is there someone, and on the theme of leadership, that stands out to you that embodies some of those qualities you described earlier? Yes, I mean, I, it's on the theme of bottom-up, it was some of the most inspiring uh, head teachers and classroom teachers who, in really, really difficult circumstances, were actually transforming the life chances of children by inspiring those children to want to learn, to, if you like, lighting a candle inside them, uh, giving them a, a, a window on the world which created an inquiring mind and an understanding that the world was their oyster, that they could do things with support. My, my philosophy has always been mutuality and reciprocity. We, we need mutuality to support each other. We need reciprocity in terms of understanding that we don't just take, we, we give a lot as well. And I suppose that really comes down to uh, 
if you're prepared to do something for yourself, we're prepared to do something to help you. And that's fundamentally in education, but it is in all sorts of walks of life as well. So you can have innovation, you can have entrepreneurship and creativity in, in business, you can have the way in which people turn things around for themselves. Small businesses have done that, the contribution to uh, new ways of doing things, of thinking differently about our economy. Th those are all grit to the mill. Those are the things we need to do. And we can do them together. It's not that you're on the side of the devil if you're an entrepreneur or you're on the side of the angels if you work in public services. We, we are mm. dependent on each other. Oh, you can't have one without the other. Yes. Um, and I think to coin a term, uh, uh, extraordinary, ordinary people, and especially when it comes to giving your answer, David, to uh, teachers, to carers, people that honestly don't get the recognition they deserve on a day-to-day -day basis. And without them, half of society wouldn't function. Completely. I, I call it civil society, which functions even when government isn't functioning. It's, what, it's the glue that holds things together. It's people working and living and having their being together and recognising that they are dependent on each other. I, I've obviously met incredibly inspiring leaders in a different vein. I was very fortunate to have met Nelson Mandela three times. Uh, I met Bill Clinton a number of times, both of whom, in very, very different ways, were inspiring leaders. I've met people in leadership positions who couldn't take a decision to save their lives. Uh, Tony Blair famously said in the, his conference speech the year before he stood down as Prime Minister, and I, I knew exactly what he meant. He said the worst ministers are those who won't take decisions, and anyone in a leadership role needs to, A, know why they're there, what they intend to do with the uh, authority mm. that goes with being a leader and a manager, and then how to draw people in as a team to be able to implement it so that it's a team approach. It's not someone out on a white charger. It's someone who can mobilise, motivate, provide incentives for people to feel that they're part of the solution as well. Uh, and I think whether it's politics, whether it's business, whether it's sport, it's exactly those qualities that you need to succeed in any of them. Yes, it is. And if people recognise that and they have a clear idea themselves, they, they have and build, because you can't build, leadership qualities, they know how to manage their own time and their own emotions because we all, from time to time, feel like really losing our temper and... I don't pretend for a minute over the years <laughs> that, that I haven't. How, how to control your own feelings and emotion and how to bring the best out in other people's. How, how you work out that people who are really good don't threaten you, they compliment you. People who have complementary skills to you are really valuable. And I suppose the ability to listen, not just for its own sake, mm. but to listen because you are conglomerating, I suppose you would call it plagiarising, thoughts, ideas, ways forward from everyone around you. I often think that um, football managers wouldn't do too bad a job if they actually talked to the fans after the game. Well, everyone <laughs> knows, uh, David, you know, you're know you a big Sheffield Wednesday fan. It I know. can't be easy having to hear the it, praise of Chris Wilder and Sheffield United every week after no, week. No, it isn't, although it's damn good for Sheffield, so I'm being a bit magnanimous at the moment That's very good about Sheffield United in the Premier League because it, it, it does change. It lifts the image of the city internationally. If you're 
not just because it's Sheffield United, but because if you're playing Liverpool uh, and you're playing Man City, then that's a global audience. You're immediately beamed across the world. So that's good. I, I, I could cry sometimes. We can, we can beat uh, Brighton, Premier League side, in the FA Cup at Brighton. We can beat Leeds at Leeds. I was there when we beat them 2-0 in January. And then you can lose 5-0. And then you lose 5-0 at home to Blackburn and half the fans were out of the ground by by half-time. What what would a manager blanket say in this situation? I, I would have asked myself a very simple question. What went wrong with motivating those players so that when they came out on the field... They walked instead of ran. They didn't have any of the passion they'd had the week before at Leeds. They showed no drive and incentive to take hold of the game. What what went wrong with the same players who'd played very well the week previously? And if you could answer that question, and there may have something may have happened. Who knows? Something during the morning before the game started. Something may have gone sour. You get the answer to that question, and you then start to ensure that we never, never do this again. Yeah, well, I'm a Chelsea fan, so I'm beginning to feel your pain at the minute. Um, <laughs> but I would like to pick up on another point you just made, actually, David, about choosing a strong team, people that compliment you. A lot of criticism that uh, Theresa May got as Prime Minister was that she tended not to pick, perhaps, the more ambitious, the more... Uh, 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 people, uh, uh, ministers that might well challenge her... One of Boris Johnson's, for all his faults, uh, he has been said in the past, he's a man that picks people that are good at their briefs. Do you agree with that? Well, I'll reserve judgment on that until I see the outcome of the reshuffle, which, as we record this podcast, has not yet happened. Mm. And I imagine, I, I would be very surprised if he didn't have quite a brutal reshuffle, not just to get people in who he likes, but people who are going to be really sparky and able and clear at doing the job because you can have all the best ideas in the world. You can pronounce on what you're going to do, but if you haven't got leaders in those departments prepared to do it, if they're just toadies, by the way, and there is a tendency, a new mm. prime minister, large majority, got to be very careful that you don't pick people because you're receiving the echo of your own voice uh, when you're speaking to them, but get able people in. I, I, I won't comment on some of the less able, but there are <laughs> clearly in the cabinet as I speak at the moment people who are really just not up to it. I mean, incidentally, anyone who won't be cross-examined by decent journalists on the BBC, changed their minds recently about mm. Sky, <clears throat> isn't worth their salt. If, but part of being cross-questioned is to demonstrate to yourself that you've got a grasp of your brief that you believe in it and that you can persuade people of it. And if you can't do that under real cross-examination rather than sitting on the sofa for mm. a, a, an easy morning television programme, get out of the business. You know, don't, don't do Without it. Without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, that's, and also, I should add, that is how uh, all Stripes earn that respect in the first place. But there is a question, isn't I'm there? I'm trying to answer the questions. That's, that's <laughs> what I always try to answer the or questions. Or be very good at avoiding them. Either way. Um, oh, well, the, the way of avoiding them is to take it head on and say, I'm, I'm not going to answer that question. Explain why. Yeah, quite. Uh, <laughs> the, um, and I think one of the great things about uh, the Lise Castle especially is that 
Um, it takes and talks to people, but again, from all different backgrounds, leading something very different, whether it's a charity, whether it's a business, whether it's in politics. There comes points, though, and David, you must have experienced this, whether as leading Sheffield City Council or as Home Secretary. When people are looking at you for leadership, where do you get your strength from? I think there's something inside all of us. There's a tenacity, there's a an ambition, there's a desire to get things done, to make a difference inside you, whether you're in public service, the charities, or you're driving a business that actually says, this is why I get up in the morning. So you've got to have something internal to yourself. The, the second is the satisfaction you get back because you do from seeing things change for the better. You, you can take pride without being egotistical. There's nothing wrong with being proud of what you do and to want to do it even better. And that's why you need both sharp minds around you. In my case, it was special advisors as, as well as ministers. I pretty well picked my ministers. Sometimes Tony asked me to take people who I was a little bit iffy about and we had to meld people into the team. I was able to pick all my own special advisors and that really did make a difference. Mm. But in, in the end, you've got to like what you're doing. I mean, the, the, the people who are un, unhappy in their skin, they, 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 it's very difficult to perform if you're in the wrong business or in the wrong department of a business or if you're really hating teaching or in politics, you, you're just in the wrong department. I was very lucky because education... And employment were my first loves in terms of what I wanted to do, and I got the job for four years. I'd then come to the conclusion that there were really big challenges for us. It turned out even bigger than I expected with the attack on the World Trade Center mm. three months after I became Home Secretary. But the big challenges of security, of reducing crime, of dealing with the development of positive citizenship, which also had a readover in terms of immigration, the kind of things that change people's lives either for the better or the worse and you don't get everything right that's the other thing you've got to recognize which is why being part of a broader team being able to take criticism but not always accept it <laughs> because otherwise you blow with the wind that that that's the the measure and i think if we can share those traits those experiences those different elements through the Leadership Council, if we can get people from very, very different leadership managerial roles and delivery roles to actually be able to share that experience, everyone will gain something from it because that dialogue will inform, it will avoid people reinventing the wheel, it will take people a lot further than the, the niche, for good or ill, the niche that they're in at the moment. Um, David, the very uh, in a couple of minutes we have left, um, I will be mean and put you on the spot and ask you for predictions, perhaps in three things. What will happen in the Labour leadership contest? How will the next few months go for the government after Brexit? Uh, well, after we leave the European Union on the thirty-first of January, and where will Sheffield Wednesday finish in the league? Lord above, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure which is the most difficult of those <laughs> questions. I, I've already in indicated where my support is for the, the Labour leadership. If we take it at the end of January 2020, Keir Starmer has clearly got, a, got off to a very, very um, strong start. 
I think, however, it will be very much down to who can reach those parts of the Labour Party membership that came in on the back of Jeremy Corbyn's election in 2015 to that post, who can be persuaded that what they want to see and the change, the big changes they'd like to enact can only be brought about in any form if we win and we win back the people, the tragic loss of people on our side uh, mm. in December 2019. Uh, and that, that's got to be Lisa Nandy or, or Kia. On, on the, um, the, the next few months... I think that the government will probably do quite well. I, I, I think that there are real dangers ahead in just having 11 months to negotiate trade deals, especially with bellicose pronouncements about we're not going to have alignment, as though alignment in itself is a bad thing when some of it will be very good. So I think there are dangers, but I think there's quite a bit of momentum going with the government at the moment, and that will be reflected in relationships in doing deals in Europe and facing outwards to the rest of the world. Sheffield Wednesday, God help me. I mean, you know, how is it that two of the things that are most important to me, other than my family and loved ones, is football and and politics. I think Sheffield Wednesday will be hard-pressed now to get into the playoffs. If we do, I think we could pull it off. But I am really reluctant and I think on that prediction, your reputation will be judged. Lord Blunkett, thank you very much for joining us God today. God bless you, Jonathan. <laughs> this has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland its parent company, or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.